Thank you for, for allowing me to be here. Um, I did put about 15 ballots in the thing. I signed different names in scribbles. So if you discover them, I've stuffed the ballot box. I'm joking. I actually learned that in California, not in Virginia. That was a joke too, probably, but not a good one. You know, I um, one thing about where I live, and um, you know, God is clearly everywhere, and we're on an earth that's fallen, right? Yeah. And so there's nowhere that's perfect. But I'm I'm a little closer, moving to Virginia. Um, it's a very nice place to live. Uh, one of the things I, I did uh, go to was as a pastor there. Virginia Tech had the worst shooting, hopefully ever, right? Um, I don't. I say hopefully ever, prayerfully ever, on a college campus, and they just had the, I think, 15th anniversary of that, and we had a large service um, on campus. And Virginia Tech, probably like UCLA and SC and different universities here, is very secular, and they don't really like a lot of religion in their campus. And we're actually, we're meeting at that point on campus and had a college group and stuff. And in going to this event, they invited the churches to come because the churches had a lot of people from that university um, who would walk through it. And just the stories that had came out of that and the tragedies that happened and the main speaker who, as a parent, and if you're a parent, raise your hand. Okay, so as or my wife and I, you would have been crying as you hear the story, but he had lost his daughter as one of the victims. She was killed. And she was a 19-year-old theater major. She uh, was in class with the gentleman who decided to, uh, to murder these people. Um, and it was just a wonderful event. And one of the things I, I, I learned in that was um, the value of putting aside positions. Because uh, Tim McCain, if you remember Tim McCain, do you guys remember who Tim McCain is? He ran with Clinton as our VP candidate. Well, he's a senator from Virginia. And he's a very um, intricate part of the Democratic Party. And Blacksburg's very much a Republican area. It's conservative, it's, it's um, more, more, there was no surprise that Trump won in Southern Virginia. I mean, that was kind of the way that was going, right? And so, but Tim McCain came and he was senator, at, uh, he was actually governor during that shooting. And the, the quickness that the politics were put aside, the, there was no talk about gun law. There was just love. You know, there was a candle service that happened where we lit candles and we stood around the memorial. And it's a beautiful memorial. If you ever go there, you should go to it. But it's every name of all the victims. Um, and there's always flowers there and there's always candles there. And we all came together and it was just a really beautiful time. And it was an example, and I, and I share that because I think we're at a time where that's happening less and less, right? That, that we're not coming together, um, we're not agreeing 
as a people. We're not grieving together. In fact, um, if there is an event, one side celebrating with, with virtue as the other side's weeping with whatever they walk through. And that's a really tough place to be as a Christian, isn't it? Because we're also humans. So all of us, every one of you in here, has, a, has an understanding, a position on whatever thing's going on. You know, when you hear the wall, you, you have an opinion of what that is, right? You, you have a for, against, who knows? But it doesn't matter where your position is. And so where do we, where do we live as things are stressed and there's so much disagreement in our culture? There's so much wrongness and rightness. And we're in a world really, and I want to go even further, where our senses, our taste and our touch and our sight and our sound and our smells um, are literally being transformed by what we feel. You know, what's most important is our feelings because our feelings really define who we are. And we live in a time where our feelings are the most important characteristic there is. Right? And don't you dare tell me not to feel what I feel. In fact, you need to accommodate how I feel. Change your language. Change the things you do. You know, it used to be, and, and I don't know how educated or much background you are, but there, there's an old saying, I think therefore I am. Have you heard that? Okay, and it was by a guy named Pascal, originally drafted that. But now with our senses being put aside, in other words, the physical world, which we called reality, right? Do you remember saying, hey, what's real is what I could touch and taste and feel? Well, that's not real anymore, because that could be changed. Via surgery, via all sorts of things. Now, feeling is our truth. Feeling drives us. If I feel unsafe, then I have to be given a safe place. And you're really bad if you don't give me a safe place, right? And if you wear something or act in a certain way, you're committing violence against me. Try that one out during the Inquisition. Right, the difference between violence then and now. If we feel offended, right, then you who offended me better get out of here. Because how dare you take my air? Right? If you feel entitled, and often we do feel entitled, and I'm not just, you know, talking about those who are young and we could all is because as you get older we kind of look back and go can you believe young people are like that right that's just where we go but I, I but we all have entitlements we all think certain things we deserve certain things we, we should act certain ways so I'm not picking on any one group but whatever our entitlements are you better make accommodation for those entitlements yeah for example being a college pastor on a college campus Initially, I'm not that anymore. One of the things I learned is a lot of people really believed that somebody else should be paying for them to go to school. 
I had a hard time getting that. Really? And what are you paying now? Because the truth is your parents are paying, not you, right? But you feel that the government should be paying for, okay. We'll just print more money. And we feel regretful, then maybe, you know, if I regret something, then somebody's to blame for taking advantage of me. And that's quickly becoming the, the, the cry. It's a hard time to live. Because if we challenge that, we're called a racist, right? If we challenge that, we're called ignorant that we don't know what we're talking about. Because if I dare not acknowledge your feelings as true, then clearly I'm a biased individual who's seeking to do violence against you, which is kind of where we are. And there's those who are arguing even that our emotional makeup is a truth that trumps our physical reality, and I don't mean that as a pun, right? Is it any surprise that there are those who are offended that someone would dare build a physical barrier? How dare you? It's not nice to do that. And that, is it any wonder that there are those who would look at that and go, that's the most biggest offense in the world that you'd ever build a fence, right? Both sides, you understand. And again, when I moved to the South, I started reading sermons by preachers who were preaching during, during um, the Civil War. And guess what? The pastor in Cincinnati used the same scripture as the pastor in Georgia. And both of them were verifying their position. Slavery's good, slavery's bad. Right? There are those who say, if you hold a weapon at all, it makes my world unsafe. And so what we need to do is take away all weapons from every human being on the planet, right? Or in our country, at least. And then on the other side, you, say, you have people going, wait a minute, the world isn't safe. I want that weapon to protect myself. Who's right? I don't know. And where do we live as Christians? <clears throat> it's a tough time. And so this is kind of a tough sermon to talk about, but I feel it's an important topic to talk about because it's where we all live. Because that argument that my identity is so important and my identity demands your recognition, even if my physical appearance and physical characteristics don't match that identity, then you're wrong. And the most obvious is, of course, gender identity, because that's a tough one. But there's a woman in Romania right now, and this is true because I've pulled up the data on it, and she identifies as a cat. That's her identity. I'm a cat. She went for surgery and had whiskers put on her cheeks, surgically. It's very funny, right? Her identity is Kitty. Who are we to say she's not a cat? 
right? That's her identity. I feel, therefore I am. Okay. Your feelings are sincere. You're a cat. I didn't. I did notice in the interview that there was a bathroom in her house and not a litter box. So, um, There's a man, 66-year-old in Holland. This is right now. He has petitioned the courts of Holland to change his birth certificate and his passport because he says, I identify as a 46-year-old, not a 66-year-old, and I'm not meeting enough women as a 66-year-old. I will meet more women as a 46-year-old. And I look like a 46-year-old. I don't look like a 66-year-old. And his case is, I feel that. I identify as a 46-year-old. How dare society tell me I'm not? Is he right? And what's society's role in that position? And fluidity of gender has opened the door to fluidity of age, to fluidity of species, to fluidity of race, right? I identify as a Filipino. Why aren't I a Filipino? You mean I have to be born there to be one? Or I have to have two parents or one parent that is one? Who said that? Why would you ever say I'm not a Filipino? You're racist to not accept me as one of yours. Okay, I'm joking, but am I? Right? It's where we live. And what's really important is that w when we live in this world of feelings driving everything, accommodation must be made for those who have these feelings. Society must adjust itself to fit the feelings that are sincere that people have. If you don't make accommodation for me, you're a bully. You're an offense. You're dangerous. Some argue that individual identity, declaration, and community acceptance will bring health to an individual and to society. So in other words, Romania will be better to recognize the cat. And the cat will also be better to be identified as a cat and not a human. And then others say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And you know this position, right? Biology is what matters. You can't change your biology. You can't change your parents. You can't change your skin color. You can't change who you are just because you feel different. And so we're going to hold to biology. And I'm not arguing either position, but I'm saying, guys, as a, the church, this is where we live. You work in this situation. You're interacting with this situation. You may have children or grandchildren who are processing things in a different way because of what they're hearing in school, what they're hearing in their life. And you're standing back as a parent, as a grandparent, as a Christian. What's your response? Besides locking them in a room, punishing them if they're young. But how well does that really work? Because at some point, everyone leaves, right? So again, I want to repeat, I'm not arguing a position, but I am saying, what does the Bible say about this? And what does the Bible give us to live in the tensions that we feel and are real? 
Because guess what? The Bible isn't quiet. It talks. And so let's start by reading together. And I, I ask you guys to read out loud. We're going to look at Psalm 103, 1 through 14. And I'm going to back up so we can read. And Pastor Hazel was saying this early, or bless the Lord, O my soul. And so let's read together, okay? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Amen. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And I ask that your spirit plant it deep in our hearts so that we have the surety of you, even if the world seems unsure. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Self-help is out there, right? And it's big business. It always has been. Millions rely on, um, on it for life direction. There's self-help books everywhere. Yet in Jeremiah 10.23, which isn't on here, but I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not a man who walks to direct a step. Which means we must turn to God. Not CNN, not Fox News, right? Not the greatest book, not the greatest self-help book. We must turn to him which means we have to read the Bible, right? Which your pastors know and, and encourage you to do. And by the way, this is clearly a congregation that focuses on the word. And, and the challenge now is, and again, I mentioned the South, some have focused on an integration of the secular with the scripture. And so what they'll do is they'll go to school and they'll learn psychology, for example, and then they'll take scripture to affirm the psychology. For example, you look at the writings of Freud, which are pretty wild, but you lay them down and then you put scripture on top of them, saying this is where the Bible is affirming the wisdom of Freud. Yet that's a challenge, right? Because using the Bible to affirm our view rather than asking God for his view and letting it correct us is a mistake. Would you agree? 
Okay, good. So there's a danger in using secular values at all. Research conclusions, great things that people are writing about, great researchers that are out there looking at things. Because the answers to human need are always going to come from the Word of God and be affirmed by His Spirit. Always. Always. And, and what we know is the danger, and I'll go back to slavery period in the United States, the danger is holding a position, slavery's good. Well, I can find plenty of scripture that affirms that. Right? Or slavery is bad, which, by the way, I could affirm a lot in scripture too. Nothing's black and white. We go to the word, we read it, and we let God read us. Right? That's the rhema, that's the, word of, that's the breath of God. That's when it becomes alive. And so, and, and to me it's coming up because like in my community, there are so many people for the wall and there's so many people against the wall. And all of them are Christian. And they're all taking the Bible and laying it in. And well, well look what Nehemiah did, he built the wall. Well, yeah, but if you look through all this verse of Deuteronomy, I mean, the, the country of Israel is supposed to be a refuge for every nation. It's supposed to be a place where you welcome. And what, what's happening is they're bringing their preconceptions and looking for scripture to back them up, which is dangerous for all of us to do. And I'll talk about that some more. But we find ourselves really right now at a crossroads, and, I, and I, I, I do believe this is the word of the Lord, because our culture has us caught, and the Lord knows it, and he allowed it. And I think part of what he's doing is pruning his church in this process. And, and that's a reality. Where do we stand on these things as Christians? Because, because the number one question for a Christian, for you, is do you believe that the, the Bible is absolute truth? What does absolute truth mean? It's not just there to guide me. By the way, it's not just there to guide you, right? In fact, it's there to be truth for every human on the planet regardless of their faith. Every human. Regardless of their sin, regardless of what they've walked through, Absolute truth means it's truth absolutely for everybody. That's what scripture means. Doesn't matter my sickness, doesn't matter my preconception, doesn't matter my political party, doesn't matter my race, doesn't ma matter my gender, doesn't matter my sins. Jesus died for him. Right? Okay. But if we rely on human wisdom first, rather than wait and put aside our human wisdom because we want a biblical answer, we want absolute truth, led by the Holy Spirit, to be in wisdom and discernment, that's hard to do today. Because we don't believe that there's, there's a truth for me and one for you Yet we live in a culture that says that's the exact thing that's true. There is a truth for you, and there's a truth for me, and there's a truth for them. And you need to respect it if you're a nice human.
right? I mean, that's our culture. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The wisdom we seek is from Jesus. Be a PhD student. That won't solve the answers of the world. And our world has a premise that there's no ultimate truth. Why do we know that? Because feelings trump everything else. Our world says feelings matter above anything. The final, ultimate, total, definitive truth for an individual's life is what they feel. They could change everything physically to fit what they feel. Even teenagers, 12, 13 years old, could decide that their feelings are sincere, truthful, and we should protect them to be able to follow the path of those feelings. That's what our society says. And we have to recognize that these are times of peril and a time where, where politics outweigh love. Division overcomes unity. And by the way, the church isn't red or blue or an elephant or a donkey, right? It's red with the blood of Christ for everybody, whether they're red or blue, wherever they're coming from. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And so we're in this cultural tension right now and, and we're at a literal crossroads, and, and if there's anything I'd say, and I'm covering, doing a lot of preamble, but it's imp important to recognize where we live, that this crossroads we're in are a very challenging position because the church is an institution in society that is asked to adapt to society. And if you grow and, and really seek exponential, it's because you're, in a way, playing into stuff. Because it's hard to preach the word. It's hard. Why? Because the word corrects. The word convicts. The word makes you go, wait a minute, what I feel isn't real. And then us, you know, us old people will go, wait a minute, what I feel doesn't really matter. My feelings are, there's nothing in the Bible that says my feelings matter. What matters? Sacrifice. What matters? Obedience. Amen. Amen. What matters is love. Amen. Not how I feel. And so in this crossroads we're in, we all have to make a choice. Do our feelings guide us? Or does the truth of God's word guide us? Because if our feelings guide us, then the Bible becomes just a proof text to affirm everything we want. And guess what? God is jealous. And he won't be in that position for long. He didn't send us the Encyclopedia Britannica to look it up by whatever we want. He sent us a living, breathing word of God the word of truth, which is universal, 
and speaks to every human on the planet. Without, there's no one it doesn't speak to. They may not want it, and they may reject it, but there's no one it's not true for. And so the question today is, how do you carry your cross in today's culture? And how do we live here as Christians in today's culture? Because we have phobias, and we have fears, and we have depressions, and we have struggles, and we look at the world and go, oh, I don't even know what to do. We're challenged how to live. We had, and we have these questions that keep going on in us because we want to be compassionate, right? And we understand that somebody really feels these things they're talking about. And we know about feelings in our life. Feelings have made us done, do really dumb things if you guys are like me, right? But when, I'm, when I've been in the moment of following those feelings, that's been the only thing that mattered, you know? I mean, when I was a teenager and in love with somebody, whatever that means, because it doesn't mean what it meant when I met my wife, right? But when I was a teenager in love with somebody, all that matters was the feelings I was pursuing, right? I just wanted that to happen. Didn't matter anything else. And so the number one thing we have to do is redefine our faith because our faith is being redefined by the culture. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, a faith is an assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Everyone say that. An assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith comes from hope. Faith comes from not what you see, but what you know. Faith comes from hearing the gospel from going to church, it does make a difference. It's not just that you have to come here and vote. But it's important you come and vote. More important is you come and worship. Because yes, the worship pastor led through a song because the offering is worship, but guess what, so is this. This is a point of worship for you too, the word of God. Faith comes from hearing the gospel, from going to church, from reading the Bible. Memorizing the Bible. Engage with the word with your life. Invest in it. Have a notebook next to the Bible when you read it. And let me say this, Bible plans are wonderful, but if, if you feel, you know, what, what, one of the biggest jokes to me is, let's read the Bible in a year, and like by day three, I'm four weeks behind. Anyone ever do that? You know, that's not what the word's supposed to do, <laughs> okay? If, if what you could invest is one verse a day, let that, let that verse be invested deeply and truly in you. And if your brethren, your friend, your brother, your wife, your husband, whoever, is, is you know, going through three books a night, Bravo, but make sure and encourage them that they're actually letting it read them. They're not just checking off a list, right? So the word is important. And as good as that book is, fill in the blank. Man, Deepak Chopra has wrote some great books. I don't know if you know who that is. But as good as whatever that book is, that self-help book, that newest, latest thing, that thing that you should read, that, oh, this will change your life book, you need the Word of God. 
And that's a crossroads point because that's a choice you're making. And, and you could amen it, and I encourage you to amen it, but let it move past an amen into your feet and your hands and your actions. Right? First Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, we're not going to discover God apart from the Word of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, that's an ironic verse for us pastors to read. Because what God's basically saying is the best we're going to do is preach folly. But you know what? It's folly that's filled with the Holy Spirit, which means it's seeds that plant and grow. Self-help, self-medication, self-exercise, self-pleasure, they're all vain, which is an Ecclesiastes reality. They'll never answer the depth of our need. We need truth that's absolute, which means we need to go to the Word of God. Number two, <coughs> number two is we need to discern man-centered faith versus God-centered faith. What does that mean? Well, secular soci um, psychology talks about the whole person, and you probably have all heard that type of language, right? Whole person who needs a strong dose of self-esteem. It's it, feeling well about yourself is important. You need to be spiritual healthy, take care of mind, body, and soul, right? And we could amend those things when we hear them because those are also biblical. I mean, you should take care of your mind, body, and soul. Um, but to accomplish soul care, you can't focus on what you feel, right? Because you're never gonna become a whole person by following your feelings. Because your feelings take you down paths that are just crazy. So you're beyond, you know, and this is where a lot of people live, and again, especially when you get into college kids or younger people, this is what I heard a lot. I am who I say I am, I say who I feel I am, and you have to affirm all of that. But I'm called to live by faith, so I ask the Bible what the truth is, I don't ask the Bible to affirm what I feel. So I don't want an affirmation. I want a correction from the Word of God. Amen. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Still, Pastor Courtney is a sinner. Still saved by the grace of God. That doesn't go away. A doctrine of faith and self begins to rise up and it grows popular. Right? Because it's great to go hear those people. It affirms everything you're feeling. And because God, like our fellow humans, is assumed to affirm our feelings. Because that's what happens. If we're going to force society to affirm our feelings through this wonderful institution called the church, what happens is our churches begin to affirm our feelings. The same way in the South, slavery became affirmed. Right? There was nothing righteous or right in slavery, obviously. But it was preached that it was, with amens in the crowd, with hallelujahs coming out, sincerely believing that. Mm. 
And what, what happens? We don't want to go to sermons that talk about truth and error. We don't want to go somewhere that they talk about hell, because hell, I'll go there later, but hell, let's not talk about. Right? We don't want to go somewhere where they talk about correction. And God help me if you talk about sin at church. Because I don't need you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Because you're just judgmental. And eventually, why don't we shut you down because you're, you have hate speech on your platform. So that, the Bible's going to teach. What does it teach? The truth of what it teaches. You're going to feel all sorts of things, and it's going to change over your life, by the way. What you feel now will not be what you feel later. What you felt as a three-year-old isn't going to be what you feel as a 10-year-old. What you feel at 10 isn't going to be what you feel at 20. Right? I'm 52, what I'm feeling now isn't going to drive me to what I feel at 70. If I live that long, God willing. In other words, my feelings don't amount to a hell of beings, really. And nobody really cares. Even though they may say they care, they really don't. Because what they want is for me to do what they want me to do, right? My boss is interested in obedience not what I feel. And what does the Bible actually teach? Let me use two really strong words, or three really strong words. Self-denial and service. In other words, pick up your cross, carry it, help people at the cost of yourself, sacrifice your desires, wants, comforts, treasury, Give two missionaries to go take the gospel across the world. Why would I do that? I could get a burger with that. I could go to Starbucks. That's like a week of coffee, what I just gave. Why would I want to give it to missions? Because you're sacrificing something. Because you believe that the word of God is true. Because you're investing in something bigger than your personal moment, your personal taste, your feelings. And our confidence isn't in ourselves; it's in God's word. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end is the way of death. And so number three, one second, I've got to drink some water. Number three is we redefine sin and repentance. Because our world, including the church, I'd say, has shifted sin's focus. And I want you to really think about this because this is important as a Christian to understand. More and more what we hear from Christians even, that sin is a sickness. Any act or thought that robs me or another human being of their self-esteem. That's how we hear it. A lot of the books that are very popular in Christian circles speak in that language, right? Sin is a sickness. Well then, what happens? Well, we see sin through, through, through human hurt. So sin is something that hurts us or hurts other people. Right, and, and repentance is all we really need to know is the 12 steps to make it right. And once we know those 12 steps, we're fine. 
And society's okay, as long as you deal with sickness, because being healthy is an important value for our society, right? No one would disagree with health. And so as long as you deal with sickness and health instead of sin, and I'll talk about something else in a second, but don't you dare preach fire and brimstone because that's offensive and that'll hurt me. And it's about God's love. God is love, right? So God can't possibly hate. And, and Eddie Stanley got in trouble recently. And I don't know if you know who Andy Stanley is, but he's a very, like the second biggest church in America or something. But um, he got in trouble recently because he basically said, because he's trying to reach younger people. And he basically said, Jesus came and took away the Old Testament. It's no longer valid. Don't struggle with the, the, the judgment, the hate, Sodom and Gomorrah, the things you see in the Old Testament. Don't struggle with that. Put it aside. Jesus came and completed that. And what we worry about is that sounds a lot like replacement theology, which is a whole other topic of the sermon. And so the path of love, what is it? Well, to make my sickness healthy, that's what God did. He came and he went to the cross to bring health to my life. He came and went to the cross to make my finances be pressed down, overflowing, and awesome. He came to the cross to take the talents that I have and multiply them so I could see fruitfulness in my life and get the cars I want and the things I want in my own. In other words, prosperity isn't just about money about blessings. God just loves to bless his children. Is that true? Yes, of course he does. But what happens is we begin to ignore sin. Because we don't want to talk about what sin really is. And, and let, let me say this, this is what sin is, an offense to God. It doesn't mean you're not healthy. It means you've offended God. You've hurt God. That's sin. That's what the Bible teaches. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they did so against God's direction, right? When Satan led a rebellion in heaven and one-third of the angels fell, they did it against God. Sin isn't just sickness. The sickness certainly is a result of the fall. Sickness is certainly part of sin. Sin is rebellion from God. Pride, raising ourselves greater than God. So we have to redefine ourselves back to what Scripture teaches. Wait a minute, sin in my life is against God. It's not about my health. Why am I thinking from my perspective of sin? And our world will say, again, the crossroads moment, our world will say sickness. And you know what? It's so much more marketable than sin. It's so much easier to talk about sickness than it is to talk about sin. It's easier to grow a crowd talking about sickness and health than it is talking about sin. And this is the biggest challenge, and, and please, I really believe this is from the Lord. If we don't know what sin is, there's no need to repent. We don't need repentance. That's a danger. That's a big danger for us.
because we have churches where repentance isn't called forward. You could be baptized in water. In fact, a church near me baptizes hundreds of people. They do it once a month. They're a Baptist church. And you know what they did? They put a big pool on their stage, and they have a, they have a, a big water slide that people slide down. So cool, right? And they slide down, and they go into the water, and then they stand up and praise the Jesus that we're saved. In fact, that might be a growth strategy for this church to build a slide for people. And we have to see the lie for what it is because without repentance, what is there? Without repentance, there's no sin. And keep going. Without repentance, there's no sin. That means I don't really need a savior. I just need a doctor to help me get better. And churches could grow in name with a friendly Jesus who's holding out medicine for everybody. We have to be careful. The Bible is clear, all have sinned. All have rebelled from God, except Jesus. And Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died so our rebellion is reconciled. Jesus died so that his sacrifice of obedience brings communion with the Father. And guess what? He is the only gate. There is no other. Acts 18.24, we meet Simon's bitter heart, and it was corrected through repentance, not through 12 steps. The 12 steps certainly help, and I'm not bashing any addiction program. But therapy isn't the answer, deliverances. The presence of God is what we all need. Through an encounter with a holy God who loves us and who gave his life and understood the sin of humanity and said, I love you so much that through nothing you do, I'm going to reconcile you too, Father. I'll do everything. It's a free gift. And so we repent. Am I being called to finish? Okay. So repentance is important. I have two more points, and I'll be really quick. Um, one is we, um, last four, or two, fourth is we're redefining salvation, because salvation isn't just a feeling, right? Salvation is real. It's not just an awakening of self-esteem. You know, and how do you do this? You hear this? You hear language like, I'm spiritual and I'm not religious. I don't like the church, but I love Jesus. And it'll show up in different ways, and it's all dangerous stuff. Because what it is is a psychological focus on feeling. I feel better when I go to church. I have a spiritual awakening. I feel like I'm fully human. And what happens? Well, I'm, I'm not really convicted. In other words, I'm not dealing with my sin in my life. I could still do the same things, you know. I know, you, you know, what I love about that church is you don't judge my relationships. You don't judge a sin. You don't judge my sexual issues. You just accept me. You never talk about that stuff. 
dangerous road to go down. Um, number five, redefine worship. Worship is often emotionally based. Why? We, we follow the feelings of worship. There could be great singers and great music. In some churches, there's smoke and there's lights and there's all these things. And you're going like, wow. Pastor comes off stage. Did you feel God today? Are, are you not supposed to feel God sometimes? If God's everywhere, won't I always know he's there? Because the question is, do, isn't do I feel him? The question is, do I know him? Right? Not does he give me warm chills when I raise my hands and when those singers sing. But do I raise my hands, close my eyes, and give everything to him who's worthy of all praise? Worship is him. It's not us. And so worship needs to change. Again, John 4.24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then finally, hell. And unfortunately, hell has lost its geography. It's become a, a sense of being and not a place of address. Right? So many churches struggle with talking about hell. They're afraid to mention it. It's going to turn people off. <laughs> yeah, it should. That's the point. Yeah. Because how does hell fit in with God's love? Really, you have to be worried if your pastor doesn't know the answer to that question. And your pastor doesn't know the answer to that question. What is clear from the Bible is that there's two places. Two. Everyone say two. There are two places to be when you're not in your body. One address is in heaven, and it's with Jesus Christ. The other address is wherever it is, but it's real, and it's where Jesus Christ isn't. It's called hell. One is with God, one is without God. God voluntarily keeps himself out of the address of hell because he respects the choices of those who made to go there. People aren't sent there. It's a choice that they made to go there. It's a rejection of Christ. C.S. Lewis has the best quote. There's no one in hell who wants to be with Jesus. And if you're worried about all the tribes who maybe never heard the gospel, people who've never heard it, I really am convicted of this because I believe it's taught throughout scripture. Everyone has the choice of Christ in their life. He reveals himself through the word, through deed, through missionaries, through different things. There is no one just sent there because you're not sent. It's a choice. So there's one hell, and if you want to be with Jesus, you won't go there. Everyone say hallelujah. All it takes is that decision. I want Jesus. That's it. You could be gay your entire life. It doesn't mean that being gay your entire life will keep you out of heaven. And I know that's a bold statement. But I promise you this, when you let Jesus in your heart, he will convict you of your sin, and that's the one sin. He will convict you, because that's what he does. And he'll, with love, help you walk through dealing with all the sin in your life. 
not just that sin, and we focus too much on any one sin. Okay. And so I'm done. Um, but I do want to say this, and I don't want to sum this up, but I want to sum up kind of, because I, wanted, I want you to draw your own conclusions, and I want to pray and ask Pastor Courtney to come up. But um, I really want you to draw your own conclusions today. And the question is, how do you approach the Word of God? How do you approach the Bible? Do you use it to affirm you, to affirm your feelings, to affirm the things you think are right? Or do you expect it to convict you, to correct you, to show you your sin? If it's affirmation you seek, then that's a path and that's a choice, and God will let you make it. But I want you to clearly see that that's a path you're choosing. It's your choice. No one's going to force you. But if you sense that there's absolute truth, that there's a truth bigger than you, that my emotions, your emotions, aren't the final arbitrator of your truth, that the world is foolish for believing in emotions over truth, then the truth you seek, that we all seek, is in a book called the Bible. That's where it is. Jesus is the Word. The Word is alive. The Word is God. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word is eternal. The Word walked the earth. And the Word bled for you. The Holy Spirit is breath into you and it will lead you down the path you choose. It will convict you of the path you shouldn't go down. And it will lead you to one of two addresses. A heavenly address, which has been set up and you have a mansion built by Christ himself. And he's a much better contractor than anyone you'll meet here. Or a house you'll build where he isn't. Hell. We're saved because of Jesus, not because of us. We choose our own address. And so that's a choice we have to make. And being with Jesus is a rest and a release and a joy. And suddenly your life becomes an invitation to other people to walk the same path. Because no matter what sin is in your life, that unique testimony that you have will speak to someone so uniquely and so lovingly that no one else could speak to them. And please see this. That, that's the gospel message. The church is you. You. It's not Pastor Courtney and Hazel. I mean, they're part of it. But by choosing the Bible, by choosing to walk this path, you become a light. that just maybe, if you let yourself, you'll discover that your light is so unique that, no, that that person or that group of people wouldn't have picked it up and followed it if not for you. If not for you. In your brokenness, in your sin, in your challenges, in your humanity, because it's a broken clay vessel that he just loves to put back together humility and so choose today 
That's the choice to them, choose. Do you redefine? Do you live with conviction? Do you decide to repent? Or do you look for affirmation?